In this episode of Behind the Boss, we catch up with Joshua Kissy, a Ghanaian-American creative entrepreneur with a speciality in photography and filmmaking. Since launching his photography career with his blog, Street Etiquette, Kissy has gone on to helm his own creative agency. Much of his work centers around the exploration of identity and widening the breadth of voices that are heard in and around the creative industry. Stay tuned as we dig into a conversation with Kissy and his experiences carving out his own space in the creative world. Joshua, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank How you. are you? I'm doing well. You're a man of the image. Tell me, yes, let's go right back. So. Tell me about your first camera. My first camera I received, it was a Canon, I think it either was a 70. Mm-hmm. Um, I got it after working at an amusement park for the summer. Yeah. I saved up my money to buy a camera. So it was one of my goals to be able to work that summer of high school, mm. to be able to get a camera and start photographing people in my community, start photographing friends. Mm. And just like, I knew that a camera was a way to kind of be kind of have its own sense of having a digital passport. Mm. You know what I mean? It's a way to travel. It's a way to, you know, photograph people. It's a way to like celebrate. It's a mm. way to like create reference points. So that was kind of my goal at that point. I wanted to get a camera that got one <laughs> and it got me in the right type of trouble. Like I got suspended for school for, <laughs> no, for like having a camera. Yeah. And the school I was going to was obviously very ratchet and a lot of things going on. I mm-hmm. photographed and videoed some stuff and the principal found out and they're like, who put this on the internet? and went viral on wow. YouTube at that time. Wow. You know, this is like 2006. What's the content? The content, the content was, was definitely questionable, okay. but it we'll was our reality. <laughs> it was the reality of the, of the right. school we were in. So it was the only time I got suspended in school. Photography has got me in good trouble, you know what I mean? And, and you know, capturing the moment and the image in yeah. a lot of ways. But for me, it was always about celebrating the present, you know what I mean? And mm-hmm. being able to photograph and film is, is ways that we do that. So since I was a kid, I was kind of always involved in visuals at some point. Who were your earliest subjects? Early, I mean, family, right? Mm. It starts. It starts with the people you love and appreciate. So, like my mom, my dad, my sisters, my brother, and then friends. Like mm. growing up in the Bronx, growing up in New York City, there's just so many people, right? There's so yeah. many different cultures, so many different aspects to life. So I would just take the train downtown, mm. go to Soho, Lower East Side, and just like meet up with folks, meet up with the creative community at that time, and just be able to have a ball. But mm. I think more than anything, it's just more so. We wanted to celebrate, especially like posting on Tumblr, yeah. early internet stuff, but we just wanted to celebrate the present. Being able to do that at that time was important. So yeah, photography was kind of my first swing into things. Yeah. You talk about Tumblr. Was there, yeah, tum- uh, were you so, showing the work? Yeah, or was, showing, it, was it about Tumblr? Yes, or? Yeah, it was Tumblr. And then we eventually developed our own kind of platform mm. and website. So the street etiquette, that was the platform and then it turned into an agency. But when we first did it, we were just having fun, right? And then eventually companies saw that stuff and they're like, hey, we want to hire you to photograph and style and art direct this thing. Yeah. So our first job, we were like 18, 19, we worked with Nike. And at that time, we couldn't even drink, right? But yeah. they like <laughs> they employed us to like photograph and style Kyrie Irving for some college basketball stuff at mm-hmm. Duke University. And my parents, they're like, wait, what are you doing? Like, you know, at, my parents are also from Ghana. So a lot of their reference points for success looked a certain way. Yeah. So they were trying to understand how creativity and, and careers kind of like went side yeah. by side with each other. So that was it's a, hard for most parents to it grasp is, it like, is. if you've got any kind of 
Yeah. And Joel this is 2008, like 2009, 2010. Yeah. Like there isn't any Instagram influencer market. There's yeah. none of that. There's yeah. no reference point. So I was just like, trust me, this is going to work. Trust in the vision. And were there similar platforms to Street Etiquette? Or? At the time, um, yes and no. Mm-hmm. I think we were just doing that at a certain space and pace. We are posting every week. There was a ton of viewers and commenters. We didn't know we kind of garnered this like global community just by a website. So mm-hmm. when I was saying like it was bigger than just New York, but New York is one of those places that once you step outside of your house, you're able to interact with so many different individuals. And yeah. I think that was, if we lived in like Idaho, I don't know if it would have popped off the same way. Yeah, uh, but you know what I mean? Unless we were doing like farm, farm, farm attire, yes. farm outfits and, and photography, who knows? But, but I yeah. guess in the time before Instagram. Yes people were looking at what people other people were wearing via yeah Tumblr. social media tumblr yeah. like tumblr was a major thing yeah. so to me tumblr was like my art school like i didn't mm. i didn't go to art school so tumblr was a way to research you know what i mean a yeah. way to celebrate a way to curate understand what curation is being able to look at work and be like oh this feels like what i like to do and it's from the 1960s yeah. what does that mean for work today so I think a lot of that opened up for me within my perspective and understanding like, oh, I love telling stories. What does that look like? Whether it's still or it moves, I love those aspects. Yeah, I was going to ask you what you learned from being Jen Tumblr. (laughs) Jen Tumblr. (laughs) I mean, community is one. Yeah. Community, like I was saying, curation. Yeah. Celebrating creativity was also another part of it. And the fact that it had nothing to do with numbers, right? Like social media today Mm. is very much driven by how many followers you have, the count of that, all those things. I think at that moment, it was more so about who you were connected to and mm. the vision you have more than anything else. So Tumblr was like a university of its own, yeah. <laughs> like the internet in itself, right? So that gave me a, a lot of ability to be able to relate to different people and just kind of create. It was like a boot camp, creative boot camp. Yeah, how much of that has kind of stayed with you into your... I, s- I still go back there and look at old images. It brings back a feeling, yeah. you know what I mean? Because that's like over 12 years ago at this point. So I think for me, being able to, like I never went to art school and looked at art as like this thing in the box. Mm. And sometimes I feel like that helps you because when you're in a space, you're not super overcritical of yourself because you're not thinking about critique. Mm. You're just thinking about the fact that you're a doer and you want to do, right? Mm. And I feel like a lot of my friends who had the privileges of going to art institutions are very critical of themselves to the point where they don't get to do yeah and for me i don't i just do and like they've been held back by yeah they've been held back by like the the structure and the the process the formalness of it all and sometimes you just need to just do i want to operate from a spirit of doing over just being critical of myself you know yeah so how did it develop from there it developed then from there i mean we went on to like have a ton of clients did our thing and then we eventually were like okay I don't want to do creative agency work no more because mm-hmm. it was just in service of the client. And plus we got into it so young. By the yeah. time we were like, okay, this is it. We were like 27, 28. So we are like, we still have a lot of life to live. Like, yeah. what, what does that look like? And I think for me, that was important to be able to be like, okay, what do I want to do? How do I want to expand? Well, it seems like you approached it by redefining the boundaries of what, what photography can be and where yeah. it can go. Yeah. And I guess a normal trajectory through a kind yeah. of creative industry wouldn't... Abs- necessarily appeal to you as well no i i agree i Mm. always talk about this aspect of opening up this kind of middle class creative it's Mm -hmm. like it's either you're super privileged you went to art school or you're just struggling and just doing a starving artist thing and i Mm. think what the internet has done is open up the gates for folks who are novice or just trying to learn the craft of photography or any creative 
and be able to be like, oh, I can make a living off of this with this freelance work or contractor work or retainer, whatever have you. Yeah. But before that, before the internet and digital media in general, you really had to be at pursuit of this craft, do it yeah. and go to school for it and have all those affirmations. But the internet kind of opened it up where brands are like, oh, I'm going to contact this person directly totally. and do that. So it just... It opened it up in the right way. Well, before the internet, it's like, how do you get your work seen? You show it in a gallery. How do you get into yeah, a gallery? Like, you go to an art school. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, you have yeah. to have credentials. It was to a get. very, very like structural mm. way to get affirmation within your career and work. To me, the museums are, it's the world, it's the people, it's the communities, the neighborhoods. Mm. Like I never wanted to lock off what people thought of like what art can be because mm. I already feel like it's already isolating and I didn't want to build up higher walls to walls that are already there. So I'm just like, how do I make it as relatable and accessible as possible. And that's just always been, for me, yeah. Interesting. Well, I love the idea of it, like, creating or helping people to create outside of the box that art has put on itself. Yeah. And, and those people in those spaces are amazing. Like, yeah. there's no knock to, like, going to art school, doing that, and being a fine artist. All those things are beautiful. Mm. I just think there should be more lanes on how you reach your destination of what you feel like creativity is. Mm. And it shouldn't just be one highway there. You know what I mean? Speaking of highways there, you had a medical profession. Yeah, side I think <laughs> I think that's just being first-generation African. There's the DLE. I like to call it the DLE complex, which is doctor, lawyer, engineer. Mm -hmm. And it's just, that's the the status. And a, for different, me, a different box. A different box. Yeah. A different type of box. I think for me, I mean, my mom works in the hospital. Mm -hmm. like, those are the things that interest me as far as like helping people and growing up in a house full of empathy in those mm -hmm. ways. But I always knew, I was like, oh, okay, if I do this profession, I could do this for like three days a week and the rest of the week I could do whatever I want to do. Yeah. It was a balance and compromise, mm -hmm. but eventually I was like, I'm not doing that. Yeah. And like, nobody should take advice from this, but I was pretty much acting like I was going to school and I wasn't. Yeah. Until my parents found out. And <laughs> you then I was just, school uniform on. Yeah, I was just yeah, like, but... yeah, I'm going and like not <laughs> happening. Yeah. And they found out what I was really doing, but by that time I was getting hired to do shoots and all this other stuff. So my dad was just like, if this works out, you could do it. I'm going to give you two years. Okay. Yeah, he was like, if this works out, you could do it. If you don't, then we're going to pick your major. And I was like, damn, okay. That's, yeah. That is... That's um, a deal. Well, very generous, actually. <laughs> two years is great. Yeah, I'm like, two years? Okay. Like, But it also put the battery in my back to just be like, I could go full blast with this. You yeah. know what I mean? From photography to now directing and filmmaking. So it's just like making that transition was important. Yeah. As you moved from kind of this blog world yeah. into creative agency world, what were the growing pains of it? What was I mean, hiring people, mm -hmm. right? I think that's a hard thing to do, especially when you hire your friends and the complications that come with that. Yep. Yeah, that <laughs> this is like, here, here's the people we love who should have the opportunities to do yeah. these things. And they don't always pan out the best, but I still believe that you can work with friends. You just have to have really good communication and clarity. You have to have people who understand the opportunity they're being given. That some, too. Sometimes your mates just think... Yeah, yeah. They're like, yo, we're here. We're just, just kind of vibing. Like, yeah. all the pros of it. Travel, you know, yeah. all the glitz and glamour of all that. But um, that was the hardest part, I think, is employment mm. of folks. And then for us, it was just like, we could continue to do this. But if we do, like I said earlier, you're just always in service to the client. You mm. know what I mean? And I think at a certain point, we're like, we want to do stuff from the heart. To me, there's heart work and then there's client work. Just trying to find the the in-between in general, when you really look at it, like you're always going to be in service to someone, whether it's yourself, yes, community, client, you never just operate in your own. So it's like, 
you know, what are you doing it for and why? And what were some of the kind of hindrances to launching it? In general, um, the hindrances, there's just nothing like it at the time. Yeah. Not having a reference point is tough. It's hard to be able to do something that you haven't seen being done before. Mm-hmm. So I feel like that was a hard part of trying to get the vision out there. And like the fact that the industry is always changing is one thing as well. It's an ever-growing industry. So yeah, going from that, have an agency and then be like, okay, we're done with that. Chapter close. What does solo work look like? What do I want to spend my time doing? Yeah. Like starting tonal, starting all these other things. I've always just kind of been a project starter. I just like to start ideas and hopefully they grow into things. <laughs> but Yeah, but yeah. I think part of that is about your guts, your, your instincts, Courage, right? Your guts, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Cats don't just magically fall on their feet. This well, they do. True. This is true. <laughs> yes, this, this is true. Yeah. I, I mean, yes, if I could be honest, I was just very selfish with my time and what I want to do. And I was mm-hmm. like, I don't want to get into any relationships. I don't want to, all I want to do is do this. Yeah. Because I always felt like things would just be a distraction up until when I'm 18 to 25, 26. I want to make sure I'm solid in this space. Yeah. Because it's not like there's folks behind me or folks in front of me. Like you're going into a room and trying to create a lane mm. that hasn't been created. Right. Mm. So it's a lot of pressure in that space. And it's also like proving to yourself, your community, whoever, that it's possible. You yeah. know, 33 now, a lot of younger creators are like, oh, like, He's the guy I saw when I was in sixth grade or fifth grade. Like, you know, so I think it's important to always just open the door for others. And that's what I've tried to do. And I'm like, hey, it's not just about me finding success within telling stories or creativity. It's just I want to make sure the kid that's coming up behind me also has that that experience and, and you know what I mean? Yeah, just that, that accessibility. Yeah, there's that saying you can't be what you can't see. True. So you have to be visible. Got to knock, knock open that door, go right in and just like don't close the door at all. Yeah. You know? Keep Don't the door, keep the door open. Behind. Tell me a bit about Tonal. Tonal was started by myself and Karen O'Conquill. This is 2016. Mm. But basically it started from the need of having diverse stock photography. And she came to me with the idea and I'm like, yo, I'm not doing this. Stock photography is whack. You know what I mean? I was like, I got No, my, I know what you mean. Yeah, I was like, I want nothing to do with that. But she was like, well, if you think about the art of it, if we introduce it in a very curated way in a story... It's more about the story, less over like the stock element of it. Yeah. There's something important there. And it kind of blew up from yeah. there. Where I think a lot of people were like, why doesn't that exist again? You yeah. know what I mean? It was sort of a very simple idea. And in ways, what we thought about the project and the brand, it was just like, hey, this is an easy way for brands to be like, we support what representation looks like in this industry mm-hmm. just by like subscribing or just by like doing partnerships. And one of the first clients we have was like Google. Mm. And they were just like, how do we find technology and representation how do we break those things apart and start to build this new mold and after that there was nike and they're like how do we make sure there's representation within sport yeah and when you think about it it's just the simple way to think about it's like every facet of our lives represents some sort of image or reference point right Mm -hmm. whether it's family photo albums whether it's billboards that you see whether it's ads on your phone imagery is everything Mm -hmm. it's everything that we kind of like it's like kind of our hieroglyphics right it's what we is what we choose to be like well this happened in this time because this image sends it Mm -hmm. right so for me i knew that an image will only become more and more important even though there's more and more images because like you know image literacy is up because everybody has a phone and everybody could take a photo that wasn't the case back in the day when photography first started you had to be very privileged to be able to take 
one photo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? One family being able to take one photo so that that family had a lot of money and they're part of that 1%. Yeah. But now photos are everything. You know mm. what I mean? They're they're very much a fabric of life. So in that time, we understood that like, hey, if we change the reference point of what diversity and representation looks like in the market, whether mm-hmm. it's billboard or brochures or whatever, that helps the next generation have a different reference to what is the norm and what yeah. isn't the norm. You know what I mean? It just feels like it's it, it filled such an obvious gap. That that's that's like what I'm saying. I was like, spot. if we didn't start it, somebody else would have. Yeah. And it was just one of those things where it's like, okay, this is the right thing to do. We were affirmed very early and continue to grow like at a crazy rate. Do you think uh, street etiquette instigated change, changed the way that other people were doing stuff. Oh, absolutely. I, think it, I, definitely, I definitely think it's impacted things. But like, I mean, even the last two years, right? Pandemic and, and all, like, I feel like time exaggerated stuff. Like, it's just like super quick. Yeah, it's crazy like, at the people, moment. People have made moves that they wanted to make. The last two years have been a, a decade. We won't know what that really means mm. until time passes and we're like out of the moment in yeah. a sense. And I think because we're still in it, we're trying to figure it out. But the industry itself, I think it's changed. Mm. I think the bigger question is asking, like, has society changed? Has this country changed? Like, because, yeah. like, the art part of right. it is just expressions of what we live, right? Yeah. Has this country changed? I don't know. Some things have changed, but some things haven't. You know what I mean? It's, but it's a like, reaction to its time, right? It's, art, it's, so. it's the, yeah, it's a reaction to the time. So I'm just like, some things have changed systematically that mm. are put in place, right? But some things are just expressions of others and they'll continue to be within that space until we reach the next chapter. So I, I like to think, yes, this, the fact that there are more black and brown creatives and representation in spaces for sure. Mm. But like sometimes some things don't change as well. So it's just like yeah. you're finding that dance and rhythm and everybody's trying to find it because brands are more responsible because they're like, yeah, like, you know, we're on social, we're like connected to people, et cetera, et cetera. But that comes with, a lot of responsibility to make sure you're doing the right thing. It's hard. We're in a space right now where it's like super critical. Everything is on the line at all times. Yeah. And I think before it was, a, it was less of that. So diversity is becoming something that people are able to do visually. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Visually. But that's for working. Sure. That's working. But the systemic change. Oh, takes, yeah. That's, that takes. That's behind whole, closed doors. That's up. behind closed doors. That's different that's kettle a, of fish. Def, definitely. I, I <laughs> yeah. agree. I was like, you know, I feel like Tonal's already inspired a lot of change. Yeah. Within our first year of launching, you know, the Gettys and the Shutters, like they all reached out, obviously, yeah. trying to inquire about what we're doing and mm-hmm. how we're doing it and all that good stuff. So I think it's already given those companies that had the space in real estate of mm-hmm. like, imagery to think different and be like, okay, we have to be better. So there's already that call to action because like people are mentioning, oh, if Nike or Google or whoever's working with Tonal, then like we have to, we have to up the ante on what we're doing. So I think it's had that great impact and it's going to just continue to do that in different iterations of the world, hopefully on what imagery looks like. So it's just a perfect storm of a project. It is. It is a perfect (laughs) storm. I'm always thinking like, okay, like, how do I start projects or brands that are like outside of me, mm-hmm. but I'm I'm passionate about and like imagery and representation and creativity, like all those things I'm very much passionate about. Yeah. So it, it gets to have a life of, of its own. So I think that's important, but it is the perfect storm of things to happen, especially, yeah. I mean, we started in 2016 and then in 2020, June of 2020, America was, I mean, the whole world is, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Actually having this awakening, yeah. racial awakening, civil yeah. awakening, like all the things happening. So many brands are like 
we got to work with Tonal now. You know what I mean? Like they just yeah. came out the woodworks, you know what I mean? Yeah, of course. Because <laughs> of everything that was happening, there were some brands who were obviously there prior, but I think like, you know, society and how people live and what we aspire to be kind of influences these yeah. these things we cannot predict. Like we didn't know June 2020. It's unfortunate that it happened that way, um, but we didn't know that it would occur. Um, how has it felt to collaborate with big brands like Apple and Nike? Like what do you feel, what's that relationship like when you get to bring the way that you work to such kind of super conglomerates? Yeah, I think now, especially being a commercial director and mm-hmm. bidding on jobs and mm-hmm. working with agencies and working with brands, you put so much of your heart into this stuff, right? You put so much of your heart into it and you just hope that other people do the same. Mm-hmm. But it's so hard because I, I think about it, I'm like, folks wake up, they brush their teeth, they shower, they clock into their computer, they do their job as the CMO or the project manager or the art, you know? Yeah. And it's like, if you're not living it, Mm. I, like I won't hold that same expectation over them to understand the work a hundred percent. Yeah, and I think for me that's always something, especially in this age where it's like diversity, representation, creativity. We want these stories that we know we can't do without these yeah. these expressions of them. Some of the things that may go to it may contradict itself. And for me, I'm like, if you're not living a hundred percent within the space you want to create from or the creativity or whatever as an employee of a company mm-hmm. sometimes you know like it just it just creates tension there's that natural tension over like somebody wants to make heart work with client work and sometimes that's always just the hard part yeah. like there's always going to be some sort of brandability i mean we're all operating off the spirit of capitalism like it is what it sure, is right yeah. it is but sometimes is. to try to create like empathy driven work, hard work within capitalism is so hard to do because yeah. you're always trying to sell a message, sell a brand, sell a thing. Mm-hmm. For me, I'm like, if, if whatever best serves a story is the answer, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, you have these SKUs and you need to like sell these units of this thing, mm-hmm. but whatever best serves a story is going to naturally have people be interested in whatever the product is, yeah. if, if it is that. But I always feel like, Product-like stories are the ones that do their thing. You know what I mean? But yeah, but that doesn't. There's a moment for it. There's a moment. That doesn't necessarily pay the bills for the folks to be able to do million-dollar commercials and all the other things. Like this year was the first time I did a Super Bowl commercial. Yeah, and it was amazing. It was great. But it was also some complications of doing a Super Bowl commercial. Like you, a Super Bowl commercial isn't the work that you create for your friends and community, and like you do, you have all the say. It's Mm -hmm. like as the as the um, expectation of it increases, there's just more eyes on the thing that you're yeah. creating. Yeah. So many of my friends struggle with that where it's like, it is tough. Mm-hmm. Like from a mental health perspective, from like all these things where it's like, you could be making a great amount of money, but does the work fulfill you? Yeah. That's a whole other aspect of it. So you have to find the balance and dance of doing like contracted jobs and jobs you just got to do. Yeah. And the stuff you want to shift. And understanding that the job isn't about how you feel. Mm, that's true. No, <laughs> You're my, like, I've got this really strong emotion <laughs> about where this should go. And it's like, it's... No, my wife told end, me that. That's not how, it's not I, about how you feel. Absolutely. And sometimes somebody needs to take you out of that. My wife's like, you're not going to work with people you like all the time. That's mm. So she was like, everybody's not your friend. Like yeah. the crews, the, but like, they're not your friends all the time. It's great to have friends that you work with, whether it's yeah. clients and crews and all of that. But she was like, you got to get more realistic. She's like, I go into a job where I may not like everybody. And that's just the normal. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm being sensitive. You still got to make cool. good work. You still got to be. I was yeah. like, yeah, it's, I'm being sensitive. Another thing. It's cool. <laughs> um, just You talked a bit about being from Ghana. Oh, yeah. Tell me how that feeds into your work or <sighs> inspires it. Wow. 
It's, it's so... Just a quick question. I know, I know, I know. I'm like, <laughs> wow, wow, wow. Um, yeah. I mean, everybody's prideful about where they're from, and mm. I think it's amazing. But when I think about being in a diaspora, being born and raised in New York City and the mm-hmm. Bronx, and New- like where I grew up in the Bronx was like the highest population of people from Ghana outside mm-hmm. of Ghana, right? Mm. So it's like I grew up in the culture just in a very different way in New York, in a city that's already so diverse and mm. so vibrant in its own way. In 2016, I took a trip just by myself, just like, I just want to go experience home and chill, like not work adjacent or anything. And that just kind of opened my eyes to so much. Um, And I know everybody has their like home awakening of like, I'm going to go back to like what ancestral beginnings look like for me. And like, do you feel something? And I think Ghana's a special place because it's one of those places that's a home for many black people, no matter where you're coming from. It's just Mm -hmm. like, you could pull up here. Everybody from Maya Angelou, Malcolm X, Martin Luther, like James Brown, like so many people have called that a home throughout the centuries, especially after we got our independence Mm -hmm. in the 1950s. That's opened up such a a metaphorical home, a Mm -hmm. physical home. Mm -hmm. There's all these things that are going on now where it's like turn up in Ghana in December, parties, all that stuff, Mm -hmm. which is cool. And you know, you're from the UK, so you're very, (laughs) you're very familiar with, you know, how the diaspora operates. You know what I mean? So for me, it was like, going back to the beginning of it all when I took that solo trip and it just sparked all the things from tonal to like how I want to create further. For me, it's like the diaspora is important to me. Like no matter where you come from, the fact that you have this multi-layered experience Mm -hmm. and whether it's your identity or the language you speak, the religion or whatever it is, like having that layer is almost like a superpower within itself. Yeah. The rest of the world may not know it, mm. you know what I mean? But like, that's a superpower. And and for me, that was important to be able to implement within my work because my work has always looked a certain way. Yeah. It's regal, there's excellence, there's all these elements. And I think because of that lineage, I've been able to see, you know, from a cultural perspective of how we show up in Ghana, which is like, very regal, a lot of colors, kente, gold, and like just how you show up. And I think think Black folks love that. We just, wherever we're at, no matter if you're like in Brazil in Compton or Johannesburg Mm -hmm. or in Colombia and Medellin, like wherever we've been able to be transported across the world, Mm -hmm. there's that sense of like, it takes a village. You know what I mean? It takes a village and no matter where you're at, you find those, those spaces. So Ghana for me is it's in my work, you know mm. what I mean? In a lot of ways, and the way I treat skin tone, the way I treat the lighting, I really just always want to create in a way that just exemplifies that, yeah. if that makes sense. But yeah, it's, Ghana is a physical place for me where it's like food, parties, celebration, culture, all those things. Mm-hmm. And then there's this like artistic kind of character in this own way where I'm just yeah. like, this represents a home in so many different ways creatively mm. and what that looks like. How do I build that home mm. for many and for all? Yeah. So that's what I've been trying to do in my work. <laughs> or trying. Great. Doing nice. with my work is is creating a home for folks, for people to feel, you know, seen, heard, and understood. Mm. That's all I've been trying to do from the beginning. I'm just like, diaspora, people, communities. Those things get me mm-hmm. riled up when I'm, mm-hmm. I'm realizing like stories and art could impact communities and people. That's amazing. I think having photography or filmmaking or directing is is a privilege because usually like the stories I heard were all oral as African and black people globally, like the stories yeah. you carry are oral. Mm-hmm. So as soon as you lose that oral story, then things can't be passed on. Mm-hmm. So I look at filmmaking and photography as ways to have these different reference points of oral stories that mm-hmm. you would tell 
you know, your elders would tell you, you know what I mean? Or whoever would tell you yeah. over time, like, I still want to have that element of, of intentionality within the stories I'm telling them. Like, how do we make sure we're still having this very griot perspective on like, no matter where you're at in the world, you're hearing this story and being impacted by it. So yeah, I think for me, like the storytelling and creativity is, is more of a collective community thing. And, Mm -hmm. and I have to constantly undo the work of being born and raised in a Western concept where it's more about me. It's more about the individual, Mm -hmm. you know, the rest of the world doesn't necessarily work that way. Yeah. So it's just like, it's me, 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 me here because it's capitalism. There's all the things, there's all of that. So I'm constantly undoing the work to get to the core of what I want to do, which is community mm. and like to think more of the collective. Just because I create something doesn't mean I own it. I just have the privilege of sharing it. Mm. And in the West, it's like, no, you created this story, you own it. You know oh, what yeah. I mean? <laughs> it's, it's, it's your idea. Like you're brilliant. You're di- yeah. like, but as you move yourself away from the Western concept, it's more about community. Like yeah. if you you share a story, you don't own it, right? You just have the privilege of sharing it. Yeah. Just because you told the story doesn't mean it's yours. I'm undoing those things as I approach my creative process and understanding the camera is a powerful tool, mm. but it's also been used in ways that hasn't always been beneficial for people of color or black folks in, in ways. So being behind the camera comes with responsibility and I think people forget that. Yeah. Whether I'm in front or behind, I'm like, there's a responsibility. You're not just operating a machine. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. In three words, what are the traits you believe make a good boss? That's a good question. I think I equate being a good boss with just being a good person. Mm. And being a good person is so elusive and so fluid. You know what I mean? It's just like, it depends who you ask. But I've had to say, I think empathy Mm. is amazing. Being able to understand people, even if it may not be your walk, may not be your talk, may not be your thing. I think it's really important. Communication. And the last thing I would say, intentionality, mm. knowing why. I feel like I always got in trouble for asking why Yeah. In, in so many situations in life or whatever. If you find those answers and you could sit within yourself and be like, oh, this is why, then I feel like you're a good leader, you're a good boss in that way. So empathy, communication, intentionality. Fantastic. (laughs) On that fantastic note, um, we've come to the end of our podcast. But Joshua, thank you so much for joining me today. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Behind the Boss with your host. That's me, Raven Smith. If you want to find out more about what it takes to be a boss and the stories behind the inspirational figures of today, make sure to tune in. 